Yeah. But for the most part, we're in the business of education, right? And so there's going to be a few things that, that come to mind for me. Safety, access to programs, you know, the ability to deliver to students what we say we're going to deliver. From the safety department, you know, can all of the students, for the most part, enjoy the educational experience without having it being disrupted or infringed upon? Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're talking about legal issues in student affairs and higher education. I'm joined by three really smart and wise folks who are experts on legal scholarship, legal practice, and applying legal issues in student affairs practice. I'm so excited to learn from each of you today. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. This episode is brought to you by Stylus. Visit styluspub.com and use promo code SANOW for 30% off and free shipping. This episode is also sponsored by Vector Solutions, formerly EverFi, the trusted partner for more than 2,000 colleges and universities. Vector Solutions is a standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. And you can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. I'm so excited to have our panelists and our guests introduce themselves and kick us off here. Uh, Ryan, let's begin with you. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you, Keith, for inviting me to be in the space. You know, anytime I get a chance to share space with John and Jessica, I mean, this is just just wonderful. So, Ryan Holmes, uh, my current position now is Associate Vice President for Student Affairs and Dean of Students at the University of Miami in Florida. Uh, so, the areas of oversight for me currently are student conduct and conflict resolution, Greek life, uh, student crisis response, alcohol and other drug education, veteran services, Chaplain's Association for Religious Life. Uh, previously, I've also overseen uh, the accommodations office and the counseling center. So, pretty much anything that can get you in some type of illegal trouble. You know, I think I had some kind of supervisor oversight or work within them. Um, and so I've been in higher ed now for 18 years. I'm uh, just happy to be here. Uh, and I'm also from Shreveport, Louisiana, lived in uh, Pennsylvania, the DC area, uh, Texas, and now I'm here in Florida. So uh, varying views, but excited to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, and Ryan and I first met long, long ago at the University of Maryland, so great to, to have you here. And then Jessica and I know each other from Colorado State, so Jessica, tell us a little bit about you. Sure, um, yeah, thanks for the invitation, Keith. It's so good to be here with everybody. And Ryan, you described some of my favorite offices. Um, I love working with those folks. Uh, as far as some of my background, I um, have a master's in higher ed administration. Um, and then I went to law school afterwards. I've been working in higher education law exclusively for the past 16 years. Um, and that's all been with public institutions of higher education. So various sizes, um, some community college systems and some very large division one institutions. Right now, I am an associate general counsel at Colorado School of Mines. Um, and I am Colorado born and raised. So love everything about the state. And again, just really happy to be here. 
Yeah, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate that. Uh, and then, John, you, you and I have known each other through some, some writing projects around sexual violence prevention and some other things. Uh, we should have mentioned that uh, Ryan was the previous uh, chair of ASCA, and you recently won an award at ASCA. So maybe you can work that into your introduction with us as well. Thanks, Keith. My name's, uh, again, John Lauer. My pronouns are he and him. I teach now at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. That's our original building that you see behind me for those who are watching the video. And I have been a graduate preparation faculty member for more than 20 years at IUP, but also the University of South Carolina and Oklahoma State University. And the courses that I teach regularly these days include history, student development theory, uh, contemporary and critical issues in higher education, and uh, legal issues in student affairs. But my and my research is in that area as well. A lot I do a lot of work and have since I was a graduate student around First Amendment issues. It just happened that I was in grad school as a master's student when the Cleary Act passed. So I was sort of, there was a level playing field. Everybody was starting from zero and, and trying to help student affairs educators understand their obligations with that law. And Ryan and I know each other, both from, both of us doing work in student conduct uh, with ASCA, where I was uh, honored to be recognized this year as their Donald D. Gehring award winner. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, great. Well, John, let's uh, continue with you. Uh, as you mentioned, you've written extensively about legal issues in higher education, uh, taught about it, researched about it, presented on it, uh, led briefings and on court cases and legislation and so much more. Um, what are some of the key areas that you think about in terms of legal issues for student affairs and higher education? How might we begin to kind of build the complexity here? The way I'll frame it, in fact, is a way that it was framed for me by Don Gehring, who I, I mentioned I won an award named after, who was the founding president of ASCA, and I had one of my legal issues classes with Don, and I think we have to begin our discussion with questions of institutional control. It's important that you understand the institutional control of your own institution. Are you at a public or private institution? Um, that's really where the conversation has to begin. And I think whenever you read a news article or something else describing a court case or a dispute in another institution, one of the questions you need to be asking yourself is, is this a public or private institution? Is it a for-profit that does change to some degree the regulation? Is it an institution that is controlled by a religious organization, because that's going to add in some other complexities as well. So that's where we start. Um, from there, it becomes, all right, you know what type of institution you're at. The first sort of set of issues we have to consider are those that relate to constitutional issues, which are going to apply to agents of the state. So public institutions of higher education and in higher ed, particularly in student affairs, we spend most of our time paying attention to the First Amendment and the protections for freedom of speech and free exercise of religion, assembly, the inherent right of association are all significant areas over the last 60 or 70 years, the courts have really been looking at those issues specifically in the context of higher ed. 
in residence life, but certainly not limited to residence life. We're concerned about Fourth Amendment issues of search and seizure. And also, another consideration is uh, the due process protections and equal protection protections under the 14th Amendment. More recently, we've been paying attention also to how the Supreme Court and states have been looking at issues related to the Second Amendment and mm -hmm. firearms on campus. That's a relatively new issue, but that's one we have to consider as well. And at public institutions, there may also be additional provisions under your state constitution that are important for you to consider. The next piece, and this does not just apply to public institutions, is the federal regulation of higher education. And the primary means by which the federal government regulates higher education is through its ability to put conditions upon receipt of federal financial assistance. And in the context of higher education, that federal financial assistance means not just direct funding to your institution, but your institution's participation in the federal financial aid system. And as a result, when we talk about federal laws tied to participation in the financial aid system, we're talking about every institution of higher education in the United States with a handful of example, ex exceptions. Unless you're working at Grove City or Hillsdale, your institution has to comply with FERPA, your institution has to comply with the Clery Act, for example, and Title IX and the other non-discrimination laws. And states have laws as well, uh, and generally they're going to have a little bit more flexibility. It's not uncommon, for example, Pennsylvania has a state Clery Act, and that applies to every institution of higher education in the United States, even Grove City College, which is not a participant in the federal financial aid system. <laughs> and when we talk about that, we're really talking about two main things. One is the United States Code. That's the laws as they are passed by Congress. And that's not for us a particularly helpful document. And then there's the Code of Federal Regulations, which is where the implementing regulations are published. And, and those to a degree are much more helpful to us. And so often uh, as practitioners, it's more helpful to think about those documents that are published in the Federal Register, particularly the commentary that accompanies them, which often is far in excess of uh, the actual uh, changes in the regulations themselves. The next consideration at, and this is particularly important at private institutions because the Constitution doesn't apply, doesn't define the college-student relationship are contracts. What are the promises that we have made to our students? And at private institutions, those become dominant. At public institutions, they are still important. Um, one, because we can promise to our students and often do more than the Constitution demands. And we make promises in areas where there are no constitutional considerations. So contracts are important for everyone, they're extra important for private institutions. And we spend a lot of time, I think, uh, concerned, rightfully so, about issues of tort liability, um, both tort liability for us as individuals and our institutions. Those are often the cases that grab the headlines uh, when you see these massive findings for institutions early on. So I, and for us, 
most often there, what we're looking at are cases that involve claims of negligence or defamation. Mm -hmm. And then the last area that I would point to are the courts. And the courts in part of their role is to interpret all of the things I just described. And I think with particularly those who don't have a, a, a strong background in legal issues, one of the things to understand is who, and it's back to this idea of control, is this a court who's handed down a ruling that actually has jurisdiction over you? Obviously, the Supreme Court has jurisdiction over the whole country, but I can remember in the 90s when the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit handed down its um, Hopwood affirmative action decision, people all around the country were wringing their hands and asking whether or not they had to change their policies. And the question was no, because they weren't in the Fifth Circuit. And they certainly should pay attention to those decisions in other parts of the country, but they aren't controlling in the same way. So I would say, broadly thinking about this institutional control, particularly of public institutions, understanding the constitutional issues, looking at federal and state regulation of higher education, uh, understanding contracts, really thinking that about that as what are the promises that we've made to our students, toward liability in terms of negligence and defamation, and then having a better understanding of the courts as sort of as the arbiter of mm -hmm. at least one of the arbiters of what those various elements mean. Yeah. Well, thank you. That is awesome. We see why you get these awards, your clarity of thinking and able to take all these complex things and really make them really easy to understand for people who are less familiar. We'd like to get Jessica and Ryan to, to muddy this water a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Jessica, what would you like to add to what John's sharing? Um, and then we'll turn to Ryan. I mean, I think I, I totally agree with everything that John mentioned. I would just add that, um, you know, the complexity of all of this and how it meshes together. Uh, so many times I have folks coming to my office and saying, well, you know, the University of Notre Dame did this and they said it was okay. And mm -hmm. working at a public institution and trying to make that distinction, it can be really, really complex, confusing and completely dissatisfying. So um, <laughs> trying to, to get through that can be difficult. Um, and then also- is that, the, is that difficulty because Notre Dame's private and you're at a public, it's in a different state, different court districts, different constitutions. Is that what makes that really different? All of those things, plus it's religious. So. Okay that puts another layer on top of it. Um, the other aspect is the hand wringing that John was talking about. Um, you know, notoriously the Sixth Circuit always has these decisions that has everybody up in arms, you know, mm -hmm. panicking a little bit and, and do we have to change our policies and what does this mean for us? We're really talking about that jurisdiction piece, which gets completely confusing when you have a state ruling on something versus a federal ruling on something else. Um, and trying to, again, mesh those things together. It becomes soupy, for lack of a better word. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for adding that complexity. Ryan, what would you want to add here? Okay, see, this is the part where I'm just happy to be here with. <laughs> <laughs> this is also the part that I'm happy to be here with someone like John who understands these things forwards and backwards uh, from, from a scholarly perspective. Everything that they've said, I totally agree with. To make it even muddier, though, I will say then you add people. Mm -hmm. um, it, 
the, the laws, you know, can be interpreted in, in you know, so in the majority of ways that people would agree with. There's also some people who may interpret on the outside of things, right? Mm -hmm. Policy, the same way. But then when you have people and motives and the bent that may come from a certain tradition or a certain, like, you know, population or campus history, mm -hmm. those types of things, that makes it even muddier. And so mm -hmm. I would say probably the difference between a Cal Berkeley and the Texas A&M will be very immense mm -hmm. and the things may hit certain campuses the way that people will react. You know, and, and it's not to highlight those two institutions, but I believe that we could agree that, you know, the, the spirit of the places are different, not bad, not good, just different. Mm -hmm. When you think about geographic location, when you think about the makeup of the folks who are on the campus, the diversity that are on the campuses, the histories, the traditions, and then you put all that in the midst of, is it a public, is it a private? Mm -hmm. When you think about what court decisions in certain states versus another state may happen, what happens at the Supreme Court? All of this turns into this, this big stew that has a whole lot of different flavors. You know, got to eat it at some point and our lines of work, right? Mm -hmm. So I just I just add that to that you know, for early on. And I thank my colleagues here for the framing. Well, I wondered how long it'd take you to get to gumbo, but you did it right there, right? <laughs> we got to the soup and metaphor and stew and right there, back to home. There we go. Uh, well, Jessica, you're a practicing attorney in yeah. higher ed. You've done that in the attorney general's offices. You've done mm -hmm. it at a multiple different institutions. As, a, as the person in the role of the attorney that, that gets these requests and, and hears about this handwriting, what do you wish practitioners better understood about legal issues? Maybe just how legal issues function generally or maybe particular things. So I'm gonna start off with one that is completely selfish for my part <laughs> and any of my other colleagues that work in higher ed law. Um, the, one of the primary pieces that I wish practitioners would keep in mind is that every record that you create could possibly be an exhibit in court. Um, and I think that in many institutions, especially public institutions, there are open records laws where folks can request all of the emails that the president sent to so-and-so from this time to this time, and we've got to turn them over. Um, that can come as quite as a shock, a shock to some folks when everything is out there in the open like that. So that's one of the things I really try to emphasize in working is it's okay to pick up the phone, um, as you're drafting emails, take the time to really look at it, send it after some thoughtful consideration, um, and, and then follow your document retention policy. So that's my PSA, totally selfish <laughs> on my part, reduce my amount of work. Um, the other piece is, is really how uh, legal issues have been changing so quickly in recent histories. Mm. I think that um, in the past, you know, things maybe stayed consistent for a while and didn't change as quickly, but we are seeing a lot of really rapid changes at the federal level, at the state level. Um, I think that uh, partisanship is coming to play a lot mm -hmm. more when it comes to um, states pushing back on federal legislation that perhaps they don't agree with, uh, trying to structure things in a different way. And we're seeing things shift um, quite a bit. So when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, I think there was a particular intent and it is being, um, it is being applied in a much different way than I believe that the intent was um, articulated. So with that in mind, I do wish that practitioners would know that the general counsel's office is open for discussions at any time Maybe we have a policy that's been in place for 10, 15 years, and it's always good to take a look at that, see if there are things that need to be updated. 
um, and really try to work on that collaborative relationship to find a path forward that works for everybody. Because what worked five years ago might be completely different now. And it's, again, it's happening so quickly with so many different things. It's very difficult to keep on track of it all. And is that change, as you said, is that a more partisan political environment where people are rather than saying, well, that's settled law, we're gonna change it and we're gonna adjust it and a new party comes into control and changes it. Is that really what's driving that increased um, pace of change? You know, it feels like it. I, I can say that with Title IX, that really feels like that's the case. You know, mm -hmm. we had some um, Dear, Coll Dear Colleague Letter guidance that came about in 2011, and we all scrambled to change our approach and make sure certain things were in place. We felt comfortable with it, and then it completely flipped, um, and we had to change again uh, in 20. Okay, this is all blending. Was it 2020 when we had to change that? Um, anything from March 2024 feels like the same. But we had to change the regulations, create a hearing process all in 90 days during the middle of a pandemic. And now we are waiting for new guidance to come down from the Biden administration as to what um, might stay the same and might be open to um, adjustment. Well, and now we see uh, with the shifts in the Supreme Court, it seems like a lot of old things that seem to be subtle law are coming back again, to be revisited by, uh, by the court for people who feel like they'll get a more favorable ruling from their perspective this time. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of um, selection in terms of where things are filed mm -hmm. to find a, mm -hmm. you know, a friendly circuit or a friendly court. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Ryan and John, what would you add in here? What, what do you hear uh, about practitioners, um, what do we wish practitioners would better understand about legal issues in addition to what Jessica is sharing? Ryan, let's, can we start with you? Well, you know, I was actually hoping that we can defer to John here because you know, I, <laughs> I know that I'm gonna have a bent and I'm gonna do a speech a little bit, a little bit better. Um, uh, the thing that I wish that a lot of practitioners, I would just say knew about legal issues is that for the most not lawyers. Mm -hmm. And so there's ways to engage, you know, these things like, you know, these legal matters, these legal issues and the, before that they're engaged in. And I think sometimes um, if you're someone like myself who has taught, you know, uh, higher ed law and policy and has also taught ethics courses, uh, if you don't watch it, you can know just enough to be dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I also think that you know, as a practitioner, and, and I have not gotten everything right, but I still got a job and I've never been in a court document. I think I do some things right. Uh, I think the practitioners would do uh, well to know when to consult your general counsel. Uh, and sometimes it's you know more often than not that you may want to do that rather than getting yourself in a position where you have to get bailed out of something. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would also say this too, though, it depends on the culture of your institution. Sometimes general counsel or, your, or your, your legal advice can be just that advice, right? Because we're charged with knowing what our work is and we're supposed mm -hmm. to know the parameters of our work is. Uh, but there's also some coaches of institutions where, you know, the legal advisor or the general counsel could be seen as a super administrator. Right. And I think that is less based on the individual and more based on what the culture of the institution is. I worked in both. And, and part of being a practitioner is kind of knowing where you are mm -hmm. and knowing how to maintain, maintain station while also being effective, right? Yeah. 
while also knowing what you need to be up on, what you need to be studying. Just because something may be happening in North Carolina and you're living in the state of, of Florida like I am, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have any implications on the things that you're going to do now or what you're going to have to do because these have a way of impacting the country, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's, I think we, it behooves all of us to know not just about where you are, but uh, the things that are happening around you, each court case, you know, even I'll even say each like, you know, OCR letter if it comes out. I mean, anything that is, that can, it can impact you. You know, it used to be for years and and John knows about this. I'm sure you do as well, Jessica. When um, say the Spring Harbor letter came out, that letter laid a foundation for a lot of things. Universities had to think about how you require students to give something that you may not otherwise ask them to provide just because you think that there's some concerns there. So mm-hmm. those types of things happen, even if it's not in your backyard, you may want to be, you know, cognizant of it because it may be in your backyard sometimes. Mm-hmm. As a practitioner, that's what I would probably add to that. I really appreciate the point about um, general counsel's offices and how they operate, how accessible they are or not whether they're offering advice or decrees or not really changes. And and I've gotten caught up in that myself going from here's how we operate at this institution and thinking that's how that works. And then going to another institution operating that same way and then finding out, Oh no, that's not how that works. That's a completely different thing. So I think it's a really great uh, sort of recognition for folks to pay attention to, particularly as we move from institution to institution. John, anything you find yourself wanting to remind practitioners about? Um, a couple of things come to mind. I think one, there's the issue of culture as it relates to the general counsel, but it can also be a factor of, I have worked, I worked at Washington University in St. Louis, a large private institution, and our general counsel's office was essentially a small law firm. Mm. I went from there to Adrian College in Michigan, who had an attorney in town on retainer. And if you're at those small private institutions, you're going to have a much more limited access to your general counsel. The other thing I would say is I think Jessica's background, it's important to understand that's unique among general counsels to have a general counsel who was an administrator and has a background in student affairs. Particularly if you have a small general counsel's office, there are a number of other legal issues that are far more significant Mm -hmm. to the practice of higher education law than uh, student affairs related issues. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I would add in working with counsel, uh, one of the best pieces of advice that a colleague of mine gave, Ed Stoner, was I never want to learn about the case on the way to the courthouse. Which goes back to, I think, but w- both what Jessica and Ryan were talking about, about consulting early with attorneys. Mm-hmm. The other piece, though, and it's going to depend some on institutional culture, is how we frame the question. I don't believe that the attorney should be making a decision about which approach is educationally appropriate. I think the attorney's role is to help us understand and manage institutional risk. So in many cases, it's a matter of not asking, should we do X or Y? Because attorneys by their nature are risk averse Mm -hmm. and they're going to choose the least risky, which may also be the least educational of the options. And instead the question is, this is what we're thinking about doing. 
how can we manage this in a way to best protect the institution? Are there landmines that we aren't seeing that we ought to be aware of? So I think it's some of it's also about how best to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Um, I think if folks come to my office and they say, can we do X is much different than this is what we want to achieve. How do we get there? And these are some ideas that we have on how to get there. So if we have options to work with, it's much easier to identify those risks than if we're um, trying to just answer one specific question. And I agree with my colleagues wholeheartedly. The one other question I'd like to ask sometimes, whether in my current role or in previous roles, is specifically if I'm dealing with general counsel attorneys, can you defend this? Mm-hmm. Because it's one thing that you're thinking about what you want to do. It's another thing to know what mm-hmm. you have in mind. But some, and at least in my experience, I'm only only yeah. mine, is that can you defend this? Because sometimes general counsel might be like, you know what? Hey, no problem. You know, this is what we want to do. Hey, it's easy to defend. Sometimes they may say, well, we can, but here are the obstacles in that if it goes in this particular. Mm-hmm. And I think those are important educational conversations specifically when you're dealing with such diverse people mm-hmm. and sections of a university that you have to deal with because I'm sure all of us are familiar with situations where we make work well for the student population in this area might not necessarily work so well for a department or a division or these things so how do you reconcile all of that and I think GC has a lot, a lot to do with that too but can you defend well yeah, you're already Go ahead, John. I think at times, particularly with the most difficult of situations, we're really in a position where we're going to face a lawsuit no matter what we do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's back. It's not, can you defend this? But is there one of these, you know, if we have to choose between these two, which one is uh, a better option for us in that scenario? And this often comes up in things like these in situations when, we have two students in conflict, for example, and it's a very serious conflict and, and we're facing competing demands about how we resolve that. No matter what we do, we're likely to be sued. Right. Yeah. And, and that's true because one, John, it's funny you mentioned that, right? And, and I think just you also mentioned Title IX and the Dear Cogley letter, that, that came up a lot in a lot of the earlier time cases. It's like, we're going to get sued, mm-hmm. be sued by the accused attorney or do we want to be sued by the person who is the accuser feeling as though the university has not necessarily, you know, had a process to go the way it should go? I mean, those are big things. And so as we move to other things that are popping up, um, it used to be a time, and it still may be, that ADA concerns were the most prevalent that you had, you know, coming out of the DOE. I don't know until this day and this year, you know, Title IX, you know, ADA. Uh, you know, um, we talk about freedom of speech. We haven't even talked about that yet, but pressure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's always one. Right. There's a lot of lot of lot of um, frequency that comes with that, and a lot of situations that come with this. I agree with everything my colleagues are saying. Mm-hmm. Well, we've already started on this path, so we'll just let you continue here, Ryan. But you, as you said, you navigate the people part of this uh, in your role and the the complex functional areas that you're a part of and and, and lead. You navigate the people, um, formal and informal, each day in your role at a very large and complex institution. What do you wish legal counsel better understood about the practical applications in real life? What else would you want to add? Well, I I think John John has hit on it and Jessica's hit on it as as well here. Um, The way I want to approach this is this. When you're dealing with attorneys, 
specifically in my experience, somebody's trying to win something, right? There's like sides. I mean, the, for the most part, when I've seen attorneys that play, that there's at least two sides trying to make sure that the pendulum kind of swings toward where they are, right? As a practitioner, do I care about it? Yeah. But for the most part, we're in the business of education, right? And so there's going to be a few things that, that come to mind for me. Safety, access to programs, you know, the ability to deliver to students what we say we're going to deliver. From the safety department, you know, can all of the students, for the most part, enjoy the educational experience without having it being disrupted or infringed upon? Now, in the situations I've dealt with, let's just take conduct, for example, right? Say if somebody has done something that may be a policy violation, in some cases may even be against the law because a lot of your policies are steeped in law, right? And you have somebody who complains and says, this is a policy violation, we want this dealt with. Yeah, it's a violation, we gotta figure out what it is. We gotta do go through the, the, the process, you know, but there's also going to be a person who is saying that, well, maybe I did this because I think I have a right to do this. And the policy may say something. I'm speaking in the context of a private now. Mm -hmm. Policy may say this, but I have a legal right to, to do this, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just about coming up with a finding. And, and the private is easier because, again, going back to what John said, we have a contract. We told you what we're going to do. We told you how we're going to do it. We told you we can't do it. Mm -hmm. But even after that is done, Right, we still got people that we have to try to make whole in the community. We have to restore the best way we know how to do it, right? And that may not necessarily jive well with someone who's had the accuser still have to see a person on the campus, whatever it may be, right? Mm -hmm. And and having those conversations. I mean, in certain cases, even just a waiver to have those conversations, right? Because students' records, you know, they belong to them, right? Mm -hmm get too loose with things, when we start talking to, to their attorney without their permission, or we start talking to their professors without their permission, mm -hmm. don't worry about those things from a legal standpoint now, not just from an educational standpoint. Um, also, what I would like, you know, an attorney, when it comes down to the practical applications to understand is how many others may be a part of the situation, right? We can say something very simple. Let's just say somebody tears down a bulletin board in a hall. Right. Um, if there's an attorney involved, and trust me, back 15 years ago, you wouldn't even see this. I mean, an attorney would never take these types of cases because it's like, well, this is something very, very simple. Now it's hard for me to even have a conversation with a student one on one without some attorney being involved. Right. Mm -hmm. For the simplest of matters. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with affluence, too. Mm -hmm. right? And afford those things. So I want to make sure I bring that into the room, too. Um, but the reason why I'm bringing this up is because. It's not just about the person who tore this bulletin board down. It's not just about the RA, mm -hmm. about who was disturbed on the floor, you know, how safe they feel now. Add another wrinkle to it. Say the person like, you know, was in athletics or whatnot, or it's in the athletic hall where you have a lot of athletes. Now, athletics kind of wants to know what's going on. So from a practitioner standpoint, we're charged with juggling all of those particular things that we may have to explain to somebody who's being represented by someone, mm -hmm. right? Whereas sometimes the part of the conversation may be, okay, well, it's done. We've come up with a solution. Can we just make these things go away, right? right. 
there, there's, a, there's a disconnect maybe sometimes, you know, in, in those particular portions. And we brought up the difference between the private and the public. Um, I will go on record in saying this. Uh, I think there's blessings and curses to both. Now that I work at a private, right? Um, whatever the contract says, based on the contract law statements that John made earlier, that's what we are, that's what we're gonna do. Whereas when you're at a private, it's not as clean sometimes, mm -hmm. at a public rather, it's not as clean right, in order to do that. And, and I'm just gonna give one more example. Um, we had a situation at the University of Miami, you know, I wanna say it was last year, maybe a year and a half ago, whenever the election period was for presidential elections, right? And this is public, so that I'm not, not speaking out of school here, where we had one of our student groups who was in favor of one candidate, uh, since there were no rule or policy on how many signs you can put, you know, in, um, in a quad space, Filled the whole quad up. It was about 200 signs for a particular candidate, right? The way students were impacted, though, who were for another candidate or felt as though this particular candidate was not just a presidential candidate, but really attacked them from marginalized spaces that impacted a great deal. As a private, we can say, oh, we see the impact on students. Let's just go ahead and put something in place here that says you can only have 20 signs in a space because it's gonna minimize the impact and still get the message across. You're not silencing anybody's voice. They still have to have their say, get to have their say. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make it a chilly environment for someone else. Can you imagine if we had been on a public campus, mm -hmm. made the same decision, how many students would have probably been able to say, well, I feel as though our freedom of speech and expression impacted. And how many like, you know, uh, lawyers or attorneys may be involved that and how many types of hearings could have been involved in that. So it's blessings and curses for both. But the flip side is this. Sometimes as a practitioner, we cheat our students out of ways to actually spend, uh, spend time taking up for themselves, actually experiencing their voice, actually understanding what it feels like to not have certain protections that a college would provide. Mm -hmm. Right? There's pros and cons to both of them. Mm -hmm. The environment has a lot to do with that. Yeah. I want to try and move us to some of the emerging issues before I do. Jessica and John, anything you want to add here to what Ryan's giving voice to? The one thing that occurs to me, and it really has to do with this idea of large and complex organizations, particularly ones that are decentralized. And in light of the seesawing back and forth that Jessica was describing earlier with Title IX, um, we really have to be paying attention as an institution to the fact that there may well be multiple policies and we may have corrected or, or dealt with the issues related to our Title IX policy, but have we paid attention to every other policy that touches that? And do we have not only institutional policies, but are there departmental policies that we need to be paying attention to on the academic side? Do we have a, a medical school or a law school that doesn't think that any of the institutional policies should apply to them and they should have all their own policies. I think that sort of the interplay between all these various policies at the institution adds a level of complexity at large, at, particularly at large institutions that I think we wouldn't see as often at smaller institutions. Yeah, I think you're pointing to how the spider web just keeps going and going and going connected to so many things. Does you wanna add anything here? Yeah, I, I just wanted to add that I think one of the most challenging aspects of this area is when the law and that educational piece um, don't 
mix or there's conflict there. Um, we see that a lot with free speech issues on the public campus, or sometimes that speech creeps into the realm of bias, but not so far that it's something that we can take action on um, under the law. But we still know that there's a huge uh, population on campus that's being impacted. And so how do we manage that educational piece as well? Um, well, knowing that students are hurting, be challenging. Yes, thank you. Um, well, I wanna give each of you a little bit of time to talk about, we've really laid the foundation really well, um, just thinking about legal issues, how to think about them, how to apply them, some of the big factors, I really appreciate that. But I'd love to hear from each of you, what are some of the emerging issues you see um, coming up or on the horizon for higher ed and student affairs practitioners? And John, we're gonna start with you. Um, thanks, we've already talked about Title IX and that seesawing, but I think, uh, one of the things that's happened as a result of that is suddenly people are paying more attention to the Cleary Act mm. uh, because there are specific provisions of the Cleary Act related to sexual assault as well. And we saw at the very tail end of the Trump administration, they withdrew the Cleary Act handbook and replaced this 250 page document with a 13 page FAQ. And um, I think we're surprised that the higher, the higher education community didn't uh, stand up and cheer that decision, uh, in part because while there were issues with the Cleary Act handbook uh, and things I disagreed with, as a general rule, it did provide helpful guidance and left institutions at least having some sense of what they needed to do. As with Title IX, the question will be whether or not the current administration seeks to revisit that issue. They have not been um, as clear about that as they have Title IX, but the two have implications for one another. So I think what happens there, we've already mentioned uh, state government micromanagement of politically charged issues on college campuses. Critical race theory started focused on K through 12, but we're now starting to see states talking about that, multiple states talking about that. Um, sexual assault, student freedom of expression and protest. There, there are a couple of states that seem to be in a race to see who can come up with the newest worst idea. And Ryan's lucky enough to be in one of those states, but not at a public <laughs> institution since it, the latest idea in Florida was the idea that we would require institutions to change their accrediting agency every cycle. Um, and so th I think that makes it much harder to get our hands around what's happening because it's happening, so much of it's at the state level. But a point that Ryan made before, I think is important there. If you see a bad idea in another state gain traction, Somebody in your state's going to oh, yeah. see that, and they're going to pick up on that idea. And in fact, there are policy networks on both sides of the political spectrum that are really dedicated to sharing those ideas across states. So uh, if it hasn't happened to you yet, you're just lucky that it hasn't happened to you yet uh, in your state. So that's, and then the last thing that I'll mention is where we end up with the Supreme Court as it relates to affirmative action. The Supreme Court has agreed to take two cases, one in call involving Harvard, one involving the University of North Carolina, both brought by, in essence, the same group and the same activist um, 
bankroll in both of those cases? And what will that mean for a subset of American higher education? Because at least when we talk about affirmative action and admissions, we're really talking about roughly 300 highly selective institutions of higher education in the United States that are making admissions decisions in that way. Depending on how the case plays out, it could have significant consequences beyond those institutions as those principles are potentially applied to other decisions that you might make. Um, how we design programs to encourage the participation of women in STEM fields or students of color in a wide variety of fields. That part will be sort of trickle down that will impact a much larger segment of higher education. Great. Jessica, what do you see on the horizon or emerging? So all of the things that John said, <laughs> and, and I would say that um, what we're seeing a lot of is um, those scholarships in the programs to help open some doors being challenged quite a bit. And they do come, or at least they seem to come from the same um, entities. But we're seeing quite a few of those challenges uh, being filed with OCR, uh, lots and lots of institutions responding and trying to um, navigate through that because even the guidance that we have from OCR regarding scholarships in this area, it's a little vague, trying to figure out what that means and uh, still, still uh, promote the mission of particular institutions. So that's a big one for, for me right now. Great. And not just organizations, in some cases, just one person. Yes. You know, there, there's one person who's filed, I think, 50 or 60 complaints with the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights on these types of scholarship programs. And they're based on nothing more than the information that appears on the institution's website. Absolutely. I don't know if we're talking about the same person, John, but I've heard also another person who's filed about 240. Mm. Well, I hope it's the same person. Uh, if not, we have two people who are a lot of time on the hands to challenge some of these uh, yeah. these programs uh, trying to achieve equity. Well, and it's it's worked the other way as well. Um, there was an individual or an organization that was um, regularly filing complaints with the U.S. Department of Education for a number of years about accessibility of institutional mm -hmm. websites mm -hmm. for those with visual dis with um, visual disabilities. And that was, you know, a, a very small group of activists who were using the process to hold institutions feet to the fire in a way that wasn't happening otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that was it, I think, hundreds of complaints. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ryan, what do you see emerging or what do you hope is emerging? Maybe do you, do you sit around and cross your <laughs> fingers about legislation or court decisions or federal guidance that would uh, really help you better serve students? Well, from the hope standpoint, I haven't there yet. You know, I'd like to answer the question just a slightly different way, right? Um, not necessarily what an emerging legal issue is, but what is probably laying a foundation or groundwork for one to emerge, if that's okay, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so where my mind is right now is that when we think about I want to say Title IX may have been one of the first um, spaces that said a university knows or should have known, right? There was the language there when something was going on. Mm -hmm. Merge that with what we've seen in the mental health space mm. and how universities have changed over time mm -hmm. 
universities are really starting to turn into caretakers when it comes down to students. We've seen this a great deal in the pandemic where a university had to do quarantine and isolation. They have to have other different testing and resources. And, you know, universities have been very, very much involved in the day-to-day -day lives of students in the care area. Um, it is one of the things that's on my mind that I fear that when you start to double that known or should have known when the universities or colleges are getting that involved in students' lives, that if something is missed, say a student is hurt or hurts themselves, specifically in the mental health area, um, that the questions can be asked, uh, where was the university? Why did the university with all of the new staff and the new positions that have been created, why wasn't this they would be detected or or dealt with. I see that being probably a legal issue space at some point. Now, the closest I've been able to see would be um, fraternity sororities and hazing. Uh, a great deal of universities and colleges have not necessarily been, been handcuffed with a great deal of the, the worst tragedies because fraternities and sororities have been seen as independent entities working outside of, even though connected to uh, universities. But when you put like mental health and housing and counseling centers or case management or social work and you have universities that are really in these spaces, uh, that's one of the things that I would probably say we could see a lot of legal issues emerging out of with university knowledge of student behavior and not necessarily um, addressing some of the things. We didn't even see it, but to be mm -hmm. perceived as though it could have been avoided and it was not. So that's where mm -hmm. I got from my position. Yeah. Great, great. That's one of the things we're, we're seeing in many of the conversations we're having about increased mental health and then increased case management, hiring case managers, hiring yeah. social workers, moving that direction to really tend to all of these needs. And then uh, that uh, our desire to better serve students then opens up uh, other Pandora's box about liability and other things coming in here. Well, we're, we're running out of time, uh, but this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. So I always like to end by asking our guests, what are you thinking, troubling, or pondering now? It might be something that is really relevant in your professional realm, or maybe something that's just on top of mind as a result of this conversation. So, and if folks want to share where people can connect with you, you can do that as well. Ryan, let's start with you. Okay. Well, for me, I mean, the only thing that's really on my mind is not necessarily connected to this particular conversation is when we get back just, just to normal. You know, when we mm -hmm. stop as conversations, when we can actually start being back in social spaces that a lot of colleges and universities really pride our, ourselves on uh, as a part of other education. So I do think about that. Uh, and, and to catch me is, is pretty easy. You know, um, Twitter is uh, at RC underscore Holmes um, or via email here. Uh, Ryan Holmes is one word lowercase at Miami.edu. And looking forward to following up with all conversations. And again, uh, Keith, I can't say enough. Thank you for the invitation. I really to really enjoyed the chance I got to spend time with Jessica and John today too. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for being here, Jessica. What are you yeah. pondering now? Oh, um, let's see, lots of things. <laughs> but uh, the conversation that we started about free speech it has me thinking a little bit about the upcoming midterm elections and just getting ramped up for that and what free speech implications might um, be in place, uh, especially as more people are returning to campus and feeling like maybe it's in a different realm than the other election, who knows? Mm -hmm. yeah, and I, I, yeah, go ahead. I think we're just seeing a lot of people feeling much more emboldened to yes. advocate and advocate forcefully for their perspective, mm -hmm. um, just in the ether of what's going on and the news and their role models and social media. And even if their side's not doing it, they see the other side and say, well, if they can do it, 
why can't I? Yeah. So I think I, I think you're onto something there. What else were you going to add? Oh, I just say um, I am not on Twitter, but I can be reached by email at jc for Chavez Salazar at minds.edu. Awesome. And uh, thank you for having us. It was really fun. Yeah, thank you for being here. Yeah. Uh, John, what are you troubling now? I think I spent a lot of time thinking about this evolution of how we view higher ed as is it a public or private good but more recently i think what i'm really seeing and you see it evidenced at both the the state and the federal level is a a fundamental distrust of institutions of higher education among other institutions mm -hmm. and i think we're beginning to see in this sort of broader political culture war higher education being one of those things that's an easy target you can win points with your side if uh, you take a particular perspective that faculty are evil leftists who are poisoning our children. And I think that's what's led to a lot of these bills being introduced in a number of these states. I don't think it's about necessarily fixing some problem the member of the legislature actually sees, but it's a way to score points. Right. And uh, to win um, recognition for their willingness to go further than anyone else has. Right. Um, and it's a, a race to the bottom that in the end, nobody wins in. Yeah. And uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's Dr. J.W. Lowry. Or you can find me, you can email me at IUP. It's jlowry at iup.edu. Awesome. Again, thanks for the invitation. It's always fun to get together with other people and talk about these issues, yeah. in part because there's the famous quote, and now that I decided I was going to say it, I can't remember who said it. Um, the law never is. The law is. The law is always about to be. This is one of those ever-evolving areas that, if it's something you pay attention to, something new is always happening that is uh, demanding our attention as well. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks to each of you. I, I, I love that we were able to pull together three people who really think about this, but think about it from very different angles. And great to hear your shared perspectives uh, and your approaches and your thinking and your wisdom and advice. So this has been terrific. Uh, thanks to each of you so much. Um, thanks to our sponsors of today's episode as well, Stylus and Vector Solutions. Stylus is proud to be a sponsor of the Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. Use promo code SANOW for 30% off all books plus free shipping. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at styluspub. Vector Solutions, how will your institution rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students report commitments to safety, well-being, and inclusion are as important as academic rigor when selecting a college. It's time to reimagine the work of student affairs and as an investment, not an expense. For over 20 years, Vector Solutions, which now includes the Campus Prevention Network, formerly EverFi, has been the partner of choice for 2,000 and more colleges, universities, and national organizations. With nine efficacy studies behind our courses, you can trust and have full confidence that you're using the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. Transform the future of your institution and the community you serve Learn more at vectorsolutions.com slash studentaffairsnow. Huge shout out to Nana Brosi, the production assistant of the podcast, who does all the behind the scenes work to make us all look and sound good. 
And if you're listening today and not already receiving our newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp list. While you're there, check out our archives. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to the fabulous guests today and to everyone who's watching and listening. Make it a great week. Thanks all. Thanks.